Jude, verses 17 to 25. This is the word of Almighty God. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved... Put, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us now to open your word and to honor you well in it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So the book of Jude has presented us with a, a bit of a battle cry. It's a call to war. It's a, it's a call for believers to contend for, to fight for, to do battle for the faith. And I will tell you that there are things in Jude that it's a lot easier not to preach. But what we do in this place is we open the word and we go verse by verse through and we let the Lord say what he said in his word. And we are supposed to fight for the faith, especially when faced with dangerous deceivers. The church to which Jude had written had been infiltrated by sneaky people who perverted the gospel, enticed people toward immorality, and rejected the authority of Jesus Christ. But the church was to contend for the faith that was once for all time handed down to them from the saints. Last week, we looked rather closely at the dangerous deceivers doing damage. We heard their warnings against them. And and in that setting, if we're not careful, we might find ourselves discouraged. It is sad to think that somebody might misuse the concept of grace that they could embrace sin, right? It's sad to think that those teachers were misleading people and they were, they were making their way into the local congregation. They were making their way into the fellowship. They were hurting people. But the point of this letter is not to discourage. The point is to put believers on their guard and to encourage us to cling to the true gospel no matter what. Today, as we wrap up our look at this power-packed little book, we're going to hear the call of God to persevere. Yes, there are bad folks out there. Are you guys surprised by the fact that there might be bad folks out there? And one day, sometimes, there may be bad folks in here. Does that surprise you? But if we will hold fast to the word of God, if we will be committed to the true gospel and the lordship of Jesus, we're going to stand, we're going to be fine because God's got this. This morning, we're going to find four points you can write down as we hear biblical encouragement to persevere. Point number one, remember the prediction of dangerous deceivers. It's kind of a reminder, kind of a review. Remember the prediction of dangerous deceivers. Look at verses 17 through 19. But you must remember, beloved... 
the prediction of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, who said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these that cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. Some of the most difficult things you'll ever face in your life, in your emotional life, is unmet expectations. Right? When you've got a thought in your head as to how a thing's going to go, and it doesn't go that way, it can hurt, right? I once told the story of, it wasn't long after Mitzi and I were married, and we were in suburban Chicago, and I was getting myself some breakfast, and for whatever reason, I don't know why in the world you gave me this, we had sh- like shredded wheat cereal. How long ago must that have been, right? Because she didn't give me that for nothing right now. <laughs> it's got gluten in it. Um, and I, powerful, self-sufficient young man that I was, got my bowl and got my cereal and grabbed my carton and poured it on there. And I got there and I took my spoon and I got a bite and I had poured orange juice on my cereal. <laughs> and expectations made that a lot weirder than it was, let me tell you. you you ever have that moment? You're expecting one thing and you get something totally different? We don't like that. Well, as Jude moves this little letter toward its close, he calls on the people not to have unmet expectations regarding the dangerous folks that were threatening the church. Instead, the people of the church are supposed to remember that God told us very clearly exactly what was coming. After reminding the people that we who know Jesus are beloved of God. You got to love that. Beloved of Jude, beloved of God, Jude tells the people, the apostles of God predicted the arrival of all kinds of people, including the kinds of people who are infiltrating the church. In the Gospels, in Acts, in the New Testament epistles, God repeatedly warned the church that though he is going to preserve the church and he's going to strengthen the church, there are evil people who will try to infiltrate the church to try to do the people of God harm. Paul said it like this in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30. To a group of leaders, he said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So when Paul was departing the Ephesian elders for the final time, He's like, look, guys, dangerous people are coming and they're going to try to lead people astray. And the point was not to depress the Christians. The point was not to make us think there's no hope. The point was to remind us we're not facing a thing God didn't see coming. Neither are we facing something God can't handle. Jude says the bad guys are going to come In the last days. When are those? Uh, It's not something off in the future. In the Bible, the last days means the period of time after the ascension of Jesus, the days from the early church onward as we await his return. The bad guys are going to be what? They're going to be scoffers. They make fun of righteousness. They make fun of right teaching. They're going to follow their own ungodly passions. Jude has repeatedly warned that these false teachers pervert the grace of God into a supposed license for sexual immorality. The false teachers cause divisions. Does that surprise you? Shouldn't. They have to, right? 
If the false teachers are having any success in their plot to gain power in the church, they are going to cause conflict, dividing the righteous from the apostate, those who follow God from those who don't. Not complicated, right? And at the end of verse 19, Jude simply summarizes that the dangerous deceivers doing damage to the church, they're worldly people devoid of the Spirit. They are lost, they're committed to the sinful world, they're not committed to God. Church, don't let yourself be surprised that from the time of the first century to the day that Jesus returns, every once in a while the church is going to be threatened by people who don't know Jesus but who want to change the church and gain power in the church and mislead the church. God warned us against those people and we are supposed to be on guard. We're supposed to cling to the scripture. We're supposed to cling to God's word and God's ways. And we are to contend for the faith. Some of you all have seen this, haven't you? Some of you guys have seen speakers on conference stages or megachurch pastors who show you that what they wanted was to be in the spotlight. They wanted to feed their egos. They wanted to get rich. That's why they said what they said and led people where they led them. Some of them use their platform as a way to find their way into immorality. And when you hear about abuse scandals of leaders taking advantage of people under their leadership, you know that they were using their power to do harm. Some of y'all have seen men who, they're not in big rooms, they're not talking to crowds bigger than y'all, but they thrive on having power over you. They thrive on controlling you. They thrive on telling you what you can do and what you can't do. They they thrive on being your master. They would rather control other people than point people toward loving Jesus. Don't be discouraged that those people exist. Just be on guard. Contend for the faith. And remember this, God is still on his throne. God is still going to build his church. God is still going to be glorified. And point number two, persevere in the faith. Persevere in the faith. 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So Jude warns us, y'all, God promised dangerous folks are going to arise, but we are not supposed to be afraid. We are to persevere. And in this pair of verses, you get one clear imperative, do this command, and you get three participles that describe how you obey the one command, because Jude loves threes. The command here is, keep yourselves in the love of God. No matter how hard the world around us gets, no matter how bad the dangerous deceivers behave, if you know Jesus, you want to focus on keeping yourself in the love of God. Now, right here, I want to point something important out to you. In the greeting of this letter, Jude referred to Christians as people who are being kept for Jesus Christ. So the first thing we want to do when we hear this command is to avoid the fear 
that we are the ones responsible for keeping ourselves saved and in the grace of God. Nothing could be further from the truth. Our sovereign God called us and loves us. Our sovereign God has promised all who have trusted in Jesus to his son as an eternal gift. And no way is God going to lose us. He keeps us. We are kept by God for Jesus. And once you know that, you can hear the command to keep ourselves in the faith as a call for you to be active and not passive in the Christian life. Knowing that God will powerfully and perfectly keep us, we can strive to keep ourselves. We can strive knowing that our being kept is not dependent on our ability, but on God's perfection. Yet we do strive seeking to become more and more of the saints of God that God already says we are. And the concept of keeping yourself in the love of God has to do with remaining, abiding, making your home in the love of God. We know that the love of God is expressed most perfectly in the person and the work of Jesus. God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? A Christian who contends for the faith then is one who will be more and more filled with the truths of the gospel that help you to remain right in the center of the love of God. Well, how do you keep yourself in the love of God? Jude tells you three things. Building Praying and waiting are how you keep yourself in the love of God. We build ourselves up in our most holy faith. The faith is holy. It is most holy. It is the faith for which we contend. The foundation of every bit of this is the gospel. You cannot build on any other foundation. You can't build on an outside supposed truth, some extra biblical thing. We keep ourselves in the faith when we never let ourselves stray from the good news of Jesus Christ and the promise of the gospel found in God's holy word. Next is praying in the Holy Spirit. That's not mystical, by the way. Everyone who trusts in Jesus for salvation has the Spirit of God indwelling us. And part of loving Jesus, part of building upon the foundation of the gospel is prayer. Christians are people who talk to God. We're filled with the Spirit of God. We cry out to God to strengthen us, to change us, to sanctify us, to keep us, because he promised he would keep us. Third, keeping yourself in the faith includes waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We've seen mention of faith. We've seen mention of love. Here we get hope depicted. The believer who keeps himself in the faith is the believer who has a mind set on things above. Our true joy is found in the glorious promise that Jesus will return, that he will have mercy on us on the final day, and that we will live forever with him in glory. If you lose that focus, if you lose that vision, you will have a hard time keeping yourself strong in the love of God. I love the way Tom Schreiner in the commentary that I read on this explains it. He says, quote, 
One of the means by which we continue in our love for God is if we continue to long for the day when Jesus Christ will show us his mercy, when he will grant us the gift of eternal life, and we will be perfected forever. Those who take their eyes off their future hope will find that their love for God is slowly evaporating, and it will be evident that their real love is for the present evil age. Now, not here saying you've got to keep yourself by your own effort or you risk being lost. What we're saying is that believers who contend for the faith, who watch out for dangerous deceivers, who are loved by and kept by God, will strive with all of our might to remain right where the love of God is. We will stand on the gospel. We will pray And we will hope in eternity with Jesus. So at this point, we know what faithful Christians are supposed to do. We're supposed to remember. We're supposed to be on guard because dangerous deceivers are coming. And we are to stand firm in the love of Christ, resting in the gospel, praying in the spirit, hoping in eternal life. But we need to remember that none of us lives as an island to ourselves. We're the church. We are a family. We're a community. We're a body. And how do we help the body in light of a dangerous time like Jude is promising is coming? Point number three, protect the vulnerable. Protect the vulnerable. 22 and 23. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Jude loves writing in threes. This time you get three reactions to people in the church who are vulnerable to the destructive doctrine of dangerous deceivers. You ever hear somebody say that if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail? Anybody heard that one besides me? Marie's heard it. Yes. The point of that saying is that to some people, every obstacle, big or small, strong or weak, must be met with extreme force. To some people, there's no nuance. Some folks see somebody with whom they disagree, and the only possible option is to start World War III. Y'all know anybody like that? If you don't, I can show you some places to look online where to find them. Here's what's nice to see in this section, at least one thing. Jude is not moving first to the nuclear option. The plan is not, oh, some people have messed up, blow up the church, start over. Neither is the plan to be nasty, to eviscerate anybody struggling with what's happening. With each of these three responses, Jude commands an increasing level of caution and an increasing level of directness. So he tells us first, have mercy on those who doubt. The doctrine of the dangerous deceivers coming into the church can confuse people. Maybe the false teachers have a few people in that local church who are just a little bit confused. Maybe some are doubting what they've always believed. How should the church respond? 
Jude says to have mercy on the doubting. Listen to me. People who are struggling with some doubts are not the enemy of the local church. A Christian who might be misled is not your enemy. I don't know how to drive that one in harder, but I wish I could. They're brothers and sisters in the faith who've been confused, a little misled. We don't need to approach them with a sledgehammer. They need people who can gently, kindly, mercifully, wisely help them back to the right path. A second group is in in greater danger, though. Jude says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. There's some people who aren't just wondering about things. Some of them are about to teeter over the edge. They need a different response. They need to be grabbed, snatched, pulled back toward the right. Like ones who are in danger of falling into the fires of hell itself, these people need loving Christians who will intervene. Maybe even sharply intervene. But now what about the people who are over the edge? What about those false teachers? Surely we're supposed to go off on them, right? We're supposed to blast them to smithereens with our righteous indignation. God's word says to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. (laughs) Hey, what about my right to blast the bad guys? Apparently, God has better plans. Even to the wicked, the fallen, the destructive, we first hold out mercy. Church, what does a person who's gotten into, who has fallen prey to, who's bought into false doctrine, what do they need? What does a person who's leading people astray need? They need the mercy of Jesus Christ, don't they? They need their souls to be saved. They need their eyes to be opened. They need to repent and believe and be saved. And we, if we love Jesus, will hold out the mercy of God toward them. We will call them to repent of false teaching. We will call them to turn to Jesus. We will call them to be saved by Jesus. But there's a warning. Jude tells us to show mercy with fear. We've got to be very careful. Unlike some folks that we know, we don't want to become so merciful toward evil false teachers that we are drawn into their falsehood. Galatians 6 verse 1 says, Brothers, If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. How do we guard ourselves lest we too be tempted, even as we try to call the wicked to repent? We focus on God. We focus on God's holiness. We keep an eye on each other and we hate even the garment stained by sin, which means never, no, not ever are we to try to identify with the lost or with the wayward by embracing sin for them. We don't do that. 
We don't ever pretend sin is not sin. We don't ever pretend unrighteousness is not unrighteousness. We don't participate in wickedness to try to make a buddy. Think with me about the concept of church discipline. We're a Reformed church. So you all like the church discipline thing, right? You all pro, pro-discipline? I hope so. For most of us, when you think of church discipline, what passage do you think of? Matthew what? Matthew 18, right? Jesus gives commands on how to deal with somebody who sins against you. What do you do first in church discipline? You warn somebody privately. You go have a face-to-face. But if he won't repent, you go with witnesses, right? And if he still won't repent, you tell the church. And if he still won't repent, you treat him as a Gentile or a tax collector. And that is absolutely an example of church discipline, that four-step process. But you know what? So too is Titus 3, verses 10 and 11, which says... As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. That was not the four-step process that we saw in Matthew 18. Instead, there are some cases, Paul's like, look, you warn them twice and then you excommunicate them. As we saw in Galatians 6, verse 1, If anybody's caught in any transgression, you spiritual folks are supposed to work toward restoring him in a spirit of gentleness. If you want to get church discipline right, you've got to realize it's not about a love of slapping people down with rules or being beholden to one cookie cutter approach to sin. The point of church discipline is that believers loving the Lord and loving one another, intervene in each other's lives to try to bring people back toward walking in righteousness. The goal is always restoration. Only when we find somebody who says, oh, I'm a Christian, but they are obstinately refusing to repent, only then do we take the step of formal discipline and excommunication. We do that for the sake of the person's soul. We pray that that our refusal to fellowship with them would be a tool in the hand of God to turn them away from their sin. We pray that as the person follows the ways of the devil, that their experience will break them enough that they will see their need of a savior. And yes, we also practice discipline for the sake of the reputation of Christ and for the sake of the church. We say to the world around us, we cannot affirm the salvation of somebody who won't walk in the ways of Jesus. But when you're willing to see church discipline as less of a formal system and more as a loving reach toward another person to call them to repentance, that's when you'll identify with what Jude has called this church to do in order to protect the vulnerable. Some doubters, they need gentle folks, they need merciful folks to just help them come back. They need people maybe just to ask them a couple of good questions, to care enough about them to help them to get out from under the influence of false teachers. You don't have to crush them. You can just say, have you ever thought about this? Hey, how about we read the Bible together? There are other folks that need a strong, almost desperate call to repent. The practice of formal discipline is that attempt to snatch someone from the fire before it's too late. 
But even when somebody has failed, even when they've gone off the deep end, even when they've been excommunicated from the church, even when we say they're like a lost person, we still extend mercy to that person. We pray for their repentance. We pray for their salvation. We pray for their restoration. And in that process, we're careful that we hold each other accountable so that we continue to hate sin and avoid the temptation to compromise. So there's the first three points. We've seen the basic thrust of the entire letter of Jude. Be aware that dangerous deceivers have infiltrated the church. Watch out for them. And part of watching out for them is you personally cling tightly to the faith. You practice personal spiritual disciplines to be strong in Christ. And another part of responding to this situation is that you help the vulnerable by taking action in proportion to the person's danger. And it's action always marked by the mercy of God and a personal refusal to embrace sin. And now we move to the letter's close. And now we return to our focus on the glory of God and the gospel and the greatness of the Almighty. Point number four, give glory to God. Give glory to God. Look at verses 24, 25. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Now, Providence folks, at the end of every one of our worship services, every gathered worship service, what do we do? We sing the doxology. I've heard that some of you, when you're forced to go to other towns or whatever and visit another church, think they're wrong if they don't do it. (laughs) Ben. (laughs) The word doxology comes from the Greek doxa, which is a word for glory. A doxology is an exaltation of the value and the weight and the worth and the glory of Almighty God. And here at the end of Jude's short little letter, we get two verses And we get a glorious doxology. These verses call the church to praise the God we serve and just to be comforted by his goodness. Look at these verses. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Just pause for a moment. How many of you really like that verse? Jude identifies God as the God who is able to keep us from stumbling. False teachers have infiltrated the church. They want to pull people away from the faith, cause them to stumble, to apostatize, to fall. But God is in fact able to and willing to keep his children from falling away. This is so beautiful. Jude called on Christians in the last section, keep yourselves in the faith. Exert your effort for your preservation. But he tells us right here, God is able to keep us. Back in the greeting, Jude addressed the letter to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So hear this. We are kept. We're commanded to keep ourselves. God is able to keep us from falling. Is that not cool? So Christian... You are commanded by God to work toward your own sanctification, to cling to Christ. At the same time, 
what you learn is that for all who have Jesus, we have been irresistibly drawn by God to Jesus and we are unbreakably held by and kept for Jesus. John 6, verse 44, Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Listen to me. We come to God when drawn. And Jesus will, a sure thing that cannot change, raise us up on the last day. He doesn't lose his own. What else is God able to do? Jude continues, and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. Guys, you've got to start liking this. There's the result of the keeping power of God. Our God, in a miraculous way, will present all believers to himself as blameless. Stop and marvel at this. How many of you think of yourselves as, man, when I think of me, I think blameless. Spouses, when you see your spouse, I mean, that is a blameless person right there. I mean, I know Mitzi thinks of me that way, but you guys, you've got it rough, right? Do you see anything blameworthy in your own life? I think you do. You and I know deep down that we have failed God time and time again. We are less than perfect. Left in ourselves, left to ourselves. We are not blameless. But what God has done in Jesus Christ is glorious. In order for us to be blameless before God, spotless, acceptable before God, two things have to take place. If you don't understand what I've been saying so far, listen to this. This matters. This matters. Do you want to be okay with God? Two things have to happen. Number one, Our sinfulness and the punishment for our guilt, the penalty, has to be lifted off of us and taken away. Number two, actual goodness and perfection, righteousness, has to be credited to our account before God. And this transaction has to be the work of God because we're not at all able either to pay for our sin or make ourselves perfect. Let me risk an illustration. Imagine you have a test to take. I don't know, super duper high level mathematics. How many of you just love super duper high level mathematics? Nerds, okay. Uh, For you people, it's grammar. There. (laughs) Literature. You've You've got a test that's in a category you're not good at. You score 100%, you live. You miss even one part of one question and you die. Except it's about living a whole life of perfection. Now imagine your test is full of errors, because yours will be, right? And there's Jesus who took a test of perfection and totally passed. Imagine, if you want to be right with God, here's what has to happen. Your name has to be erased from your test and Jesus' name has to be there so he faces your punishment. And on Jesus' test, God has to be willing to write your name as if you scored the perfect score. That's how to be right 
with God. Does that make sense? Thanks be to God. The Lord Jesus Christ has come to do what we cannot do. Perhaps my single favorite verse in all the Bible is 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That verse tells you, God the Father punished Jesus as if Jesus was guilty for our sin. And it tells us that God the Father willingly treats us as if we had lived out the perfection of Jesus. This glorious work called imputation by the theologians. God counting Jesus as guilty for us and counting us as having Christ's perfection. This is the center and heart of the gospel. All who turn away from sin and put their trust completely in Jesus have this promise of God presenting us before himself as blameless. And when God places us blameless in Christ, in his presence, Jude says we're going to be in the presence of his glory with great joy. God created you and me specifically for the purpose of magnifying his glory. And when we're in the presence of God's glory, we're going to worship God. And when we magnify God's glory, we will, as a perfect natural consequence, receive never-ending joy. Because finally, for the first time ever, and for, the, and for all of forever, we will have our souls completely, totally satisfied with the infinite joy of the infinite goodness of the infinite God who made us. That's good news. And then Jude addresses the praise in verse 25, quote, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. There is only one God, friends. He is the triune God of the Bible, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And these three persons work together in harmony as the single one true God to save our souls through the work of Jesus. And because we are saved in Jesus, we surrender to Jesus as Lord. He's our Lord. He's our master. He's our king. And to this God, Jude offers praise, saying, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority. All those words point to the, to the might of God, the royal rule of God, the power of God. God is good. God is glorious. He is of the highest worth, the greatest value, the most significant weight of all. God is our king. He's worthy of our lives. He's worthy of our obedience. He's worthy of our praise. And God will rule. And when is God worthy of these things, you might ask? Jude says, before all time and now and forever. From eternity past through the present into eternity future, our God is worthy of all of our praise. Never has there been a time when God was not. Never has there been a time when God was not worthy of all praise. Today, God is still worthy of all praise. Forever in the future, God will be worthy of all praise. This is our God, our Savior, our Lord. And the last word, amen, is a word of affirmation of the truth, of agreement. When we say amen at the end of a prayer, we're not saying thanks, bye-bye. When we say amen at the end of a prayer, we're saying, yes, I agree. May it be so. Amen here calls us to see there's one God. He is our Savior. He keeps us from stumbling. He presents us to himself as perfect. He gives us full joy. And he is the king for all of eternity, past, present, and future. Praising this God is your only source of true joy.
And let me close with a call, especially again, if you're hearing this and, you know, nine-tenths of it are like, I have no idea what that guy's saying. If you don't know this God, if you're not sure that you have been forgiven by him, if you don't have his grace, if you don't know his joy, I invite you to faith. There is only one God. You have only one chance to have one Savior. There's only one way for you to be forgiven by God and to be made blameless before the Lord who made you. And it's not by you participating in ceremonies and it's not by you being a good little boy or a good little girl for the rest of your life. None of us are that good. The way is for you to turn away from sin, let go of thinking you're the master of your own life, and entrust your soul and your eternity to Jesus, God the Son, who lived a perfect life, died to pay for your sins, and rose from the grave, and who's alive even today. Jesus, he lived, he died, he rose from the grave to bring us the mercy of God. Believe in him, surrender to him, Ask him, Jesus, please save my soul. He'll save you, he'll change you, and he will lead you to follow God with your life and give you the gift of joy in God's presence forever. Let's bow together and pray. Lord, we are desperately in need of your grace. Those of us who have it still realize how deeply we need it. And God, we would ask you to help us to know your grace, to know your mercy. Lord, as we seek to honor you, we just ask, do your work in us. Teach us to love you. Teach us to be faithful to you. Teach us to, as your word often says, abide in the truth and truly, truly magnify Jesus. Lord, I pray for anyone who has heard this message who maybe maybe they don't know you yet. Maybe they are still figuring it out. I pray for them that even though all that sounded complicated, that you show us something simple. Help us, Lord, to see. There's a God. He's perfect. And we are in need of his grace. I pray that you will help people to be drawn to you, to rest in you, to find their hope in you. And Lord, I pray for the Christians who hear this message. I pray that we will, in fact, just be overwhelmed by the concept that you would present us before your throne blameless. Help us to watch out for dangerous deceivers by clinging tightly to the true word of God and the one perfect gospel. That's our prayer. Bless your church. Grow us. Do your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Friends, I invite you to stand together now.